Welcome to another We Went Fast original. The idea for this story came to me over a year ago when I saw a photo Simon Cudby took of Ricky Carmichael's 2001 Honda CR250R. It was a shot from behind the bike, which was angled at 45 degrees. The number plate had a big white number two on it with green backgrounds. The Woody Woodpecker graphics produced by Throttle Jockey were splashed across the radiator shrouds. It's a beautiful photo of a beautiful bike. It's a bike that never got ridden. Team USA didn't go to the 2001 Motocross of Nations. Because of the attacks on America on September 11th, 2001, none of the bikes built for that race ever got ridden. I wanted to observe the 20th anniversary of 9-11 with a story that had a moto angle, which is tough because compared to what happened that day, racing and riding dirt bikes doesn't really matter. That's a luxury. No Planes in the Sky, the grounding of Team USA 2001, documents one way that 9-11 affected the American motocross world. It's an account of where 21 people in and around Team USA's orbit were on 9-11 and what they did when they found out America was under attack. If you'd like to read the story and see the photos, go to wewentfast.com. And if you'd like to keep these stories coming, check out wewentfast.com shop. Plenty of quality merchandise, fresh designs, and the revenue goes back into telling more stories. And now, No Planes in the Sky, The Grounding of Team USA 2001, read by the author, Brett Smith. The home screen image on Mike Brown's mobile phone represents the best and worst memories from his decades-long professional racing career. It's a portrait-style photo of a 2001 Kawasaki KX125 taken in a Santa Ana, California studio by Simon Cubby that same year. Across the top of the black vented number plate is a small American flag with USA next to it. A white number one decal stretches downward and appears to sink into the green front fender. The handlebars show a bit of national flair, red on the throttle side, blue on the clutch side. The crossbar pad has three stripes on half and motocross designations printed between the Renthal logos on the other half. The bar mounts, too, are split between red and blue. Too wide to fit in the screen space, the gray grips disappear off the edges. Brown never rode this bike. This particular motorcycle was supposed to go to Belgium for the Motocross of Nations at the Citadel in Namir on September 30th, 2001. But he won the AMA 125cc Pro Motocross Championship earlier that month on a bike exactly like it. Today, when Brown sees his unused Team USA machine on display, in the showroom of Pro Circuit's Corona, California headquarters, he doesn't sit on it. He even owns a spare set of those handlebars and mounts, but he doesn't use them. Even though the image on his phone, which he sees every single day, is a sore spot in his life, something that represents, quote, the most disappointing thing I've ever had happen in racing, he still chooses to make it a part of his everyday life. It's his way of saying, He'll never forget. Part 1. Where They Were For those involved in this story, and for most reading it, the morning of September 11, 
2001, began unremarkably, as any Tuesday in early September might. Even the president's daily brief including nothing alarming. It was heavy on matters in Israel. George W. Bush woke up in Sarasota, Florida, and planned to spend his morning at an elementary school pushing his No Child Left Behind education initiative. At breakfast, the White House Chief of Staff, Andy Card, remembers saying to the president, quote, it should be an easy day. The dozen or so people involved with Team USA for the Motocross of Nations could have said the same thing, an easy, routine day. The AMA Pro Motocross Championships finished nine days earlier. Teams assessed their losses and victories, some riders prepared to switch brands, and everyone looked ahead to the already too close 2002 season. In 19 days, Team USA would defend its title at the 55th running of the Olympics of Motocross. All three Team USA riders, Mike Brown, Kevin Windham, and Ricky Carmichael, lived east of the Mississippi River. But Carmichael and Windham were in Southern California for bike testing with Honda and Suzuki on September 11th. Brown had just returned from California. He was at home in Tennessee. When American Airlines Flight 11 hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46 a.m. Eastern Time, Carmichael stirred from sleep in the guest room of a home in Laguna Niguel, California. With a wheels-up departure of 6.30 a.m. Pacific, he tried to orient his mind for the long day ahead. He was brushing his teeth when he heard his friend and mentor Johnny O'Mara yell from the living room. On the other side of the Santa Ana Mountains, in Corona, California, Dottie Wyndham's phone rang. Her sister wanted to know where she and Kevin were and if they were okay. She told Dottie to turn on the TV. Brown was alone that morning. He worked on his motorcycle in the basement. His mother called. Did you see what happened? She asked. He had to walk upstairs to turn on the small television he and his wife kept in the kitchen. He didn't understand what he saw. Why would this happen? He asked himself. In 2001, nobody had news feeds in their palms or notifications on their wrists. So everyone involved with Team USA, almost all of whom were in the Pacific time zone, found out through their habitual routine of turning on televisions and radios first thing in the morning. Or because someone called them and told them, you have to turn on the news now. That's how I found out. My hotel room phone rang. I was in California too, working for ESPN's Moto World. That weekend, we planned to produce the TV coverage at the RM Cup at Glen Helen Raceway. In a dark room, I watched what appeared to be a war breaking out in my own country. Suzuki's Lee McCollum used his television as an alarm clock. It came on every morning automatically. As soon as I opened my eyes, I saw the towers collapsing, he says. I didn't know what was going on. It didn't sink in for a while that I was watching something real. At Pro Circuit, Jim Bones Bacon was a bit surprised to find the doors locked and the lights off. He arrived every morning before the start of business, but usually someone was already there. When he opened the door to the race shop, the bat phone, a separate phone line that few people have the number to, rang. It was Ted Studley, a freelance designer who produced the company's ads and catalogs. He said something about New York City getting bombed. 
Nothing Studley said made sense to Bones. What are you talking about? He remembers saying into the receiver. Pro Circuit didn't have a television at the time. Bones turned on the radio. Even at the highest levels of government, nothing made sense. By 9.42 a.m. Eastern, all 4,500 planes flying within United States airspace had been told to ground immediately. A threat to Air Force One came around 10.37 a.m., and then a report of a car bomb at the State Department at 10.55 a.m. Both were false. The president demanded to be taken back to Washington, but those bound by federal law to protect him refused his wishes until they could ascertain more information. That chaos led McCollum to lie in bed far longer than normal. Honda's Mike Gosler was about to get into the shower when his wife yelled for him. Pro Circuit's Mitch Payton had just gotten out of the shower when he saw what he thought was a preview for an action movie. Photographer Simon Cudby caught a bit of the news before he left for his studio to shoot products for mechanics wear. He listened to the radio while he snapped images of gloves, thinking the entire time, What the f***? Brown's mechanic Stephen Henderson got roused awake by his roommate. Wyndham's mechanic Ali Seymour woke up in the same house as Kevin and Dottie. Watching the news coverage shook him so much that he can't even remember going to the test track later that morning. Several sources placed him there, but other than calling his mother, he has little memory of, quote, the weirdest morning of my life. Carmichael's mechanic, Chad Watts, was getting dressed when he saw a second plane, United Flight 175 from Boston, plunge into the South Tower of the World Trade Center at 9.03 a.m. Eastern. Honda's Cliff White was already on Highway 14 with a 2002 CR250R and a cache of parts in a box van when he got a phone call. He was heading to the massive Honda Proving Center of California, a secluded and guarded 4,000-acre facility in the Mojave Desert where the company could develop and shake down every single motorized product they manufactured. The bike was for Carmichael to ride. He left Kawasaki at the conclusion of the 2001 season. September 11 and 12 was his first official formal test with Honda and its Japanese engineers. It was my wife, White remembers. We pulled over to the side of the road to listen to the radio. We just needed to stop. Suzuki's team manager and Team USA leader Roger DeCoster turned on the television, which isn't normal for him. When interviewed for this story, he couldn't remember why he turned on the TV until his wife nudged him and said she was the one who told him to. It's understandable that DeCoster may have spent the entire day in a fog. At 9.37 a.m. Eastern, American Airlines Flight 77 struck the south end of the Pentagon, where his son Nigel worked in the State Department. Roger couldn't reach him. He didn't hear his son's voice until that afternoon. Part 2. What They Did When Kevin Wyndham arrived at the Suzuki test track later that morning, the bikes were unloaded and waiting for him. He struggled to bring himself there at all. He remembers a strong inability to think clearly and make decisions. He wasn't mad, wasn't scared. He was lost and unfocused. There was no way I could have ridden a bike that day, he says. He can't remember what other riders were there 
if any, but he knows that nobody started a motorcycle. McCollum walked out of a box van and looked up into the crystal blue sky. He couldn't believe it was true. No planes in the sky. Not a single jet stream. The airspace on the bluff where they tested usually looked like a busy intersection with streaks of white miles above Earth crossing each other at right angles. Nearby, at Yamaha's test track, Tim Ferry looked up at the same empty sky in disbelief. On the radio, they both heard that all planes in the entire country were grounded. Seeing nothing but blue gave them chills. We were all dumbfounded, McCollum says. There's this big tragedy going on, and we're going to ride a motocross bike? That didn't make sense. So we just sat there and listened to the radio. McCollum had helped Seymour build up Wyndham's RM250 for the Motocross of Nations. Normally, he spun wrenches for Travis Pastrana, who was recuperating after a crash-filled summer cost them a repeat title in the AMA 125cc Pro Motocross Championship. Pastrana was the original 125cc rider for Team USA, but he dropped out of the AMA series on August 19th, he suggested Mike Brown take his place on Team USA. Brown had plans to drive down to Cairo, Georgia, to ride and train for the race. He can't remember what he did for the rest of September 11, but he knows he scrapped his trip south. Carmichael and O'Mara drove the 175 miles from the beach to HPCC in Cantile, California. They listened to Howard Stern until the reception disappeared. Carmichael recalls a lot of chatter and a chaotic flow of information. The roads, however, seemed completely normal. Lots of traffic. I don't remember anyone reaching out to me or the other way around on the 11th, he says. I had a lot going on. I don't even think my parents had a cell phone at that point. I was on the moon, basically. Little to no contact. They showed up to the facility and got straight to business. Ricky remembers working from 10 to 3 in what he calls a learning day. They tested seat heights, handlebar bends, mounts, foot pegs. If those around him struggled to cope with the news coming from the East Coast, he didn't pick up on it. That's textbook Carmichael. His strength as a competitor was eliminating distractions and staying focused. That evening at dinner in a nearby town, he remembers people chatting and acting less relaxed than normal. Later, inside his hotel room, he turned on the TV and the weight of the news hit him as he absorbed it with images that were replayed over and over. He watched footage of people leaping from the World Trade Center, the wreckage of Flight 93, a hole in the Pentagon, piles of ash and rubble in New York City, entire companies of fire departments feared to be killed. It was surreal, he says. Time seemed to stand still. Hey, this is Brett Smith, the author. We Went Fast is an independent media brand funded by you, the reader and listener. Your purchases at wewentfast.com shop go directly back into the brand so I can keep telling fun stories like this one. So treat yourself to something fun. We Went Fast also makes a great gift and I can ship anywhere on your behalf. I'll even include a handwritten note and stickers. That's wewentfast.com shop. And if you're really feeling generous, 
You can be part of the We Went Fast team by becoming a patron. Patrons get discounts on swag, early releases, and exclusive content. All the details are at patreon.com slash we went fast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash we went fast. Part three, what are we going to do? This is where the memories get fuzzy. Like Seymour, DeCoster can't place himself at the test track. He believes he went to the Suzuki race shop. But Ian Harrison, who ran R&D for the team, remembers Roger telling everyone to turn off the radio at the test track in Corona. That's how he blocks everything, Harrison says. He just wants to put his head down and get to work. 20 years later, Harrison still works with DeCoster, only now at KTM. Wyndham showed up around 9 a.m. and had an ill feeling in his stomach. He had a flight booked to Belgium in two weeks, and he couldn't see that happening. He didn't need time to think about it. America appeared to be under attack with commercial airplanes as weapons. He already didn't like flying. He took his first flight as a teenager to a race in Mammoth Mountain, California. He didn't like it at all, and he grew more anxious the older he got and the more he flew. September 11 cost me a lot of money, he says. For the next seven years, Wyndham flew mostly on private planes. He said his travel budget ballooned to $1 million per year. I went straight to Roger and I said, I'm out of the motocross the nations, Wyndham said. And I think it was that day, 9-11. I remember not really knowing how it was going to be perceived, but also not caring. I had my own demons and issues to work out. Mentally, he couldn't put himself on a plane to Brussels. And that was before he knew that three of the terrorists who piloted the hijacked planes were radicalized in Hamburg, Germany, less than six hours up the Autobahn from Namir. Plus, he wanted to give DeCoster as much time as possible to find and prepare a replacement. Wyndham didn't recall that he was a replacement rider. The original open class selection, Ryan Hughes, suffered a severe concussion while practicing in late July. Then on September 1st, he broke his collarbone, ribs, and partially collapsed a lung. It's very likely, however, that Wyndham replaced Hughes earlier than September 1st. Wow, Wyndham says with a laugh when he's reminded of the timeline. It's pretty bad when your backup rider backs out. He doesn't remember how long he was supposed to stay in California on this trip. He and Dottie rented a car and drove 1,800 miles back to Centerville, Mississippi. If any attempts were made to salvage a team and scramble to fill Wyndham's spot, nobody can accurately recall. Yamaha's Ferry, who finished third overall in the 2001 250cc AMA Pro Motocross season, can't conjure a memory of getting a phone call, even though he wants to believe it happened. On September 12th, Honda went back to HPCC, and that's when Carmichael first heard buzz about a possible withdrawal from the Motocross of Nations. White said he and Ricky talked about the situation and possibilities, just an open dialogue, no decisions. Carmichael needed more information, more time, and wanted to speak with his inner circle back in Florida. The news about Wyndham didn't even raise his eyebrows. I knew how he was, Carmichael says. I knew he was a worrisome person, and it didn't surprise me. 
I needed to know more about what was going on before I came to conclusions about what I wanted to do. While Carmichael says he saw both sides of the argument, stand up for your country on one hand, and on the other, is a dirt bike race really important right now? They couldn't even fly home, let alone to Europe. Ultimately, he decided it wasn't a good time to travel overseas. He said it had nothing to do with Kevin's decision. Later that year, Carmichael told Cycle News, quote, My life is worth more than my pride. With what happened that terrible day in September, I wouldn't want to go over there. I think that's chancing it too much. Brown was pissed but powerless when he heard that his teammates backed out. He wanted to go. First he spoke with Carmichael, then Mitch Payton. He wanted to put an exclamation point on what had been a fantastic season. Payton also wanted to go. His father was a tough-as-nails Marine, and he adopted the man's stand-up-and-fight attitude. But Dad surprised me when he said we shouldn't fly over there, Payton says. He reminded me that Brussels is the headquarters of NATO, which could be a target, and we could wind up getting stuck. Preparing the motorcycles, spare parts, cash, and shipping crates required a lot of careful planning and going over checklists and customs forms. Jimmy Perry, Pro Circuit's team manager, continued that process while he waited that decision. He said they were inserting the final screw into the lid of the crate when Mitch rolled into the shop and said, It's official. We're not going. The American Motorcyclist Association distributed the press release on Monday, September 17th. For the first time ever, Team USA would not show up to defend its title. DeCoster went to Belgium at the end of the month. So did Gosler, who was born nearby in the Netherlands and wanted to visit friends and family. DeCoster admitted in an interview that he was a little worried while flying. In a pre-event festival in the city of Namir, he transferred the Peter Chamberlain Trophy to the FIM, so it could be given to the winning team. France won, and they did it with two replacement riders, David Villeman on the 250 and Yves DeMaria in the open class. Luigi Segui raced a YZ125. In the post-race press conference, Villeman said, I want all the people that doubted us to now stand up and say sorry. Eve and I have been given so much bad press. Wyndham and Carmichael eventually represented Team USA again as teammates. In France in 2005, they took back the Peter Chamberlain Trophy for the first time since 2000. Mike Brown never raced at the Motocross of Nations. Now 49, he represented USA at the 2021 VETS MXDN at Farley Castle in Great Britain. Coincidentally, the dates of that race were September 11th and 12th. When asked if he'd still join Team USA for the official Motocross of Nations, if asked, he didn't hesitate to say yes. And he's not kidding. Epilogue. The motorcycles were never ridden. Brown's bike was removed from the crate and reassembled. It's one of the many bikes in the Pro Circuit showroom, which looks both like a museum and a dealership. Jim Bacon sort of wishes they'd left it in the crate with the sides open, you know, for posterity's sake. Depending on who you ask, Carmichael's 2001 Honda CR250R wasn't even finished on 9-11. Gossler said he built up the bike before September 11th 
and it sat in the race shop. Chad Watts, who couldn't have become a Honda employee until at least September 3rd, he was Carmichael's Kawasaki mechanic through the September 2nd finale, said the bike was in pieces. He said Gosler had built up the chassis, but the rest of the parts were still waiting for assembly. When the team withdrew, he says he personally cut up the frame and recycled it. Either way, the bike doesn't exist anymore. An employee who worked with Honda in 2001 and still works there today said the bike is not within its museum inventory and added, it has no relevance. We didn't save a bike unless it was a championship winner. Ali Seymour wanted Wyndham Suzuki and he grew frustrated watching it sit untouched at the race shop until the day he left the brand in late 2002. Today, the bike sits in a private collection in East Moline, Illinois. The photos seen in the article were taken just before September 11, 2001. Simon Cudby shot them at the request of RacerX Illustrated and said the bikes arrived one at a time, which is why he didn't shoot all three together. He used 120 medium format film for the tight shots and 4x5 large format film for the profile versions. Popular with professional landscape photographers, 4x5 images show incredible amounts of detail. Like Carmichael's physical bike, the profile images of the CR250R are gone, or at least misplaced. A second photo shoot with the unridden machines happened with Kenny Jones after September 11th. Watts met Peyton and Seymour at Pro Circuit and loaded up all three bikes into the back of his pickup. Peyton snapped a photo of the three different brands jammed into the bed of the truck. Watts said excited and gawking motorists who recognized the significance of his cargo almost ran into him on the highway as he tried to drive to Riverside. Jones vividly remembers taking photos of all three motorcycles together. Only nobody knows where those photos went or where they were used, including Jones. Afterward, Watts returned to Pro Circuit with the bikes. He, Peyton, and Seymour stood around drinking beers and bench racing. Someone got out a piece of cardboard and a marker and wrote, Fuck Bin Laden on it. They posed for a picture, their sign and middle fingers raised toward the lens. Thanks for listening to No Planes in the Sky, the grounding of Team USA 2001. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter at wewentfast.com slash subscribe. And check out the latest designs and products at wewentfast.com slash shop. This audio version of No Planes in the Sky was voiced by the author Brett Smith, audio production by Nicholas Smith.